Right, we're doing it again. You find me on an Avanti West Coast service from Edinburgh to London Euston. The London Euston, as made famous by the news today, Thursday the 5th of October, that uh, it will not have all of the upgrades uh, that were promised on the basis of the HS2 high-speed extension and uh, will no longer be connected to Manchester with a high-speed train. So, um, first time I did one of these, I did it in an airport. This time I'm doing it on a very noisy uh, train about to call into Northampton. The time is 21.26pm. I have another four hours on this journey. I thought, what better way to spend it than to obnoxiously get, get the old recorder out and record another one of these. The context is there's only four other people on this carriage and I don't think I'm bothering them. Uh, at least I'm talking no louder than the couple that are having a conversation behind me are talking. So I think we're fine. What's been, what's gone on? Uh, well, came back from uh, Germany. Uh, really glad I did that trip. Uh, lots of reflection on, firstly, how remarkably lucky I am that I get to do stuff like that. Um, and it's just, just still a phenomenal feeling that money falls into my bank account after coming back from a trip like that. I, um... I just, it, it's, um, it feels like cheating every single time. And uh, obviously it's not lots of money and it's not, it's not so much money that if I were doing this in 10 years time, I'd be, um, I'd be happy. But goodness me, it does feel like a complete zero to one uh, that I am, I am a comedian and I am paid to do comedy. And I was, um, I was trying to explain to somebody quite how, irrational being a comedian is that you do spend your first we spend years and years and years essentially making a loss on yourself and I think that something that does unite every successful comedian is that they take big swings and, and by that I mean the material on stage has to come from kind of a risky place it has to come from a place that that, that hasn't been done before but also they take a big swing on themselves. Every comedian has had that kind of inflection point. Well, actually, I say every comedian. There's a few which just have intergenerational wealth and they don't do this. But for a lot of people, it's just this question of, I've just got to commit to it. I've got to invest in myself. And sometimes that investment is an opportunity cost of not doing something else or forgoing a social life. Um, sometimes it, it is just money. I mean, in my case, it was, I had some money from from when I uh, sold my company and that gave me enough that I could spend a year and not worry too much about driving and making a loss on a gig and and it is it's a form of investment and you know I think a lot of people a lot of people go through that process and then don't end up getting the returns that they were hoping for but that that is that you know that is how business works that's um, that's how investment works uh, sometimes there are losses and now I feel that I'm I, I actually don't know if I've broken even from comedy well this is inevitable isn't it um, I think I'm just going to carry on I wonder if I did if I did a total look at all the maths I, I must have done I must have overall made more money yes that, yeah, that's almost inevitable now but that wasn't it wasn't that way until maybe the pandemic I suppose okay well I am now distracted by the announcement
Uh, what else has been what else has been going on? Uh, I've been planning the rest of the month. I'm going to be heading uh, to Europe uh, again, which means Paris. It means Vienna, Graz, a bunch of uh, a bunch of gigs in the Netherlands, and then I will end by going to Romania. And so I'm going to be on a TV show which is uh, ostensibly it's a comedy competition. I don't really know too much about it, but from what I can work out, it's like X Factor, but with stand-up. And they haven't got enough Romanian stand-up, so they invite non-Romanian people to come and do... I really hope that this guy is not distracting, but we continue. And uh, my presumption is that they, um, you know, they just don't have enough local stand-up, so they invite people to go and do it in English. And I know some people that have done it in English, and they seem to have had a decent enough time. Um, but it's very interesting to, to think, how do I play this, right? I've never gigged in Romania. I don't know much about the country. Um, it's filmed on, like, a big glossy TV set. So if nothing else, I'm going to get a good clip to put on my social media or my showreel. So I'm kind of thinking about how do you play to both audiences? How can I play something that will get a good reaction in the room but also will be suitable for my own social media? And I'll have li very, very little time to write there. I'm, I'll be arriving at 1am the, the day of the filming so I'll, I'll do a gig in Amsterdam no that's not true, Utrecht uh, at like 5 o'clock and then as soon as that gig ends I think I take the 7 or 8 o'clock flight and then I'm in Bucharest uh, a few hours later so I'll arrive at 1am and the filming is the next day so what I'm having to do is uh, basically back myself with my theory that lots of countries are basically the same and uh, experiences that we think are unique to us are typically shared and so I just need to kind of start writing what I think it's going to be like and give myself loads of options and then by the time I eventually get there validate them so like what <laughs> so whatever I'm kind of currently thinking Romania might be like um, kind of write jokes as if that's the case and then maybe write some jokes as if that's not the case and then when I'm there, based on what I actually see in front of my eyes, decide what material to do. Um, the, the only thing that the production told me is no gypsy stuff. So that's um, that says a lot. <laughs> that they've obviously had problems with that before. Uh, and that's their that's obviously the reputation they're trying to avoid. But it's difficult to do this without kind of, um, you know, wading through stereotypes. But the Romanians, which I have met in the UK, have been like the people that ran the car wash near my home. And I think it's I think it's fair enough to mention that because it is true. Um, so I'm trying to think about how I can kind of connect the UK and Romania. Potentially, there's going to be some Brexit material there, um, but that's on my mind, and I think that's going to come very very quickly because I've got I've got London for a week, and then I'm basically off. I'm off Paris, um, Vienna, Netherlands, uh, and then onwards to to Romania. Okay. So that's um, that's the kind of the, that's the diary side of things sorted. Um, what else has been on the mind? Uh, I have really enjoyed doing very very little. Um, I I spent the last weekend, so the weekend just gone. Uh, my friend Rick has opened up uh, a comedy club. Uh, which is the third comedy club in Edinburgh, and it's um, I think it's great. I think it's really good that that he's done this, and 
Edinburgh currently has two full-time comedy clubs, and there were some rumours that one of the one of the other comedy clubs wasn't too happy about this new opening. But I've got a, a general abundance mentality that in order for you to say, oh no, that's a bad thing, you have to basically make the case that the total number of seats that are available to see comedy in Edinburgh in any given night is the totality of the stand, which is, I think, about 120, and then Monkey Barrel's rooms, which are another, like, 300 in total, um, plus whatever, just the tonic, which is a few hundred, and potentially Gilded Balloon. Basically, it's like, do you think that the number of people who can fit on all those seats, which is, like, I don't know, 600 to 800 people, that is the total number of people that will ever want to see comedy in Edinburgh. Obviously, that's not the case, right? It's probably thousands, thousands and thousands more. Um, and all these clubs are offering different products. So the kind of comedy landscape in Edinburgh is you've got the stand. That was the original comedy club. Um, I don't regularly play there, but I'm doing a trial spot next week. So we'll see how that goes. And it's... Um, it is an amazing room. I've done one spot there before. And it, there's, you know, there's something special about being in a basement club. It's got low ceilings. The audience are incredibly close to the stage. The staff are really on it. You know, like, they really know what to do to make sure that the audience are a respectful comedy audience. They're hot on the phones off. They're hot on the no talking. They're hot on the, you know, people sat where they're supposed to sit. Um, So... Great club, um, and they have a good roster of comics. Then Monkey Barrel, which is uh, kind of the, the, the seen as the new kid on the block, but it's been going for years and years. Uh, also, I've done weekends there. Fantastic club. Uh, very, very respected during the Fringe, of course, where lots of um, acts speak highly of their model, which is not exploitative at all of acts, and how well their shows go there, and how lots of Monkey Barrel is just seen as kind of a badge of quality and a destination because it's had multiple award winners and fantastic acts there before. So, generally speaking, if you've got a run with Monkey Barrel, you know that you've got a good chance of selling lots of tickets on the basis that you are there. I, again, repeat my point, I really hope, I really hope that this is not, uh, I really hope this is not distracting. So, um, so you've got the, the new kid on the block. Monkey Barrel, and then Rick and John, who founded Monkey Barrel, have now set up this third club, which is in a converted strip club, and it is an incredible space. You walk up um, some red carpeted stairs, and the walls are like kind of sparkly gold, and there's a big mirror as you walk up, and then you kind of turn a corner um, past a gent's toilet. Apparently they, they had very little need for a women's toilet at the time. Um, and then you go into this room, which is like... Well, firstly, it, it's kind of a... it's a Structurally, it's a box room within a big room. So in order to create the strip club vibe, they, you know, they've you know they obviously like put some fake walls, some stud walls, um, and all those walls are covered in glitter paint. Um, and then there's a big corner stage with mirrors behind it that they've covered up, which had the pole... Um, and then a really big kind of chunky bar, you know, like a big kind of bar made out of metal. And it's great. It's a great space. And there weren't that many people that came to the soft launch. Um, but even with, you know, I think the total capacity of that room would probably be about 80 or 90. It was probably about a third full. Um, but still, incredible energy, really good sight lines. I can really see the space uh, being successful. And uh, 
it kind of got me thinking about like what the secret of a comedy club is and I do think that comedy clubs need to have a, a, a form of soul and that obviously that's that soul can be inherited you know if you think about um, you know if you think about like what it what it is to go to watch comedy the acts are just one part of it what the comedian says on stage is just one part of it what you remember is the whole feeling the whole atmosphere and that's obviously different whether you go to a theatre whether you go to an underground club how big the room is etc etc all those things uh, are kind of data points that help an audience to form an opinion as to whether this is a good night or not and clearly you can inherit that you know the the whatever it is that 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 over you know many many years of building this space um the original owners of the strip club did um you know it it it, it creates a certain atmosphere and the audience are genuinely excited to be there you know it's 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 wonderful to watch people walk up the stairs and smile and grin as they see as they start to kind of piece the pieces together and you know I think about in Malaysia where I spent uh, a good while there was basically two full-time comedy clubs there when I was there one was the crack house rest in peace that's the comedy club that got shut down when religious fundamentalists um, decided they didn't like it and the joke factory which is uh, owned by or formerly owned I think there's it's been a bit there's been a restructuring recently but formerly owned uh, by comedy, Malaysian comedy megastar Harith Iskander um, and I've played both clubs um, but there's a reason why the Crack House kind of became my home I, I called it my home club for a long time and why I only ever played one weekend uh, at the at the other place at the Joke Factory and it's obviously it's, it's mainly down to the people, right? I became very very good friends with Rizal who owns the Crack House and um, Harith Iskander's wife uh, who runs the club um, who runs the Joke Factory was just very rude to me, um, and uh, and I've, I'm I'm over uh, bending over backwards and taking nonsense, especially from people who I don't respect. And she's she did she did nothing to prove any uh, any credibility or knowledge of comedy. Um, so uh, yeah, it's just because she was rude. I thought well, that's it. I'm not, never going back again. Um, they don't see that as a loss, and neither do I. So there we go. We're even. Uh, but anyway, the, the the reason why like. The, the shows, I did two, I remember doing two shows there, two hours, and I remember them being quite hard, even though I got quite good numbers, and on the other hand, the crack house like, was was just a dream it was, it was you know, and these are, you know, they're not that far apart from each other in Malaysia, they're both similar sized places um, and, and you've got to ask yourself why is there such a discrepancy, why does standing on one stage with basically the same audience it's, it's this very similar kind of people that would go to one or the other why is one so much easier than the other and I do think it comes down to this idea of space and soul the the comedy club set up by Harith Iskander had all the kind of elements of a comedy club it had a race stage and good lighting and you know close seating you know all the kind of check boxes were checked but it was ultimately in a unit in a shopping centre and I think that affects things. I think it. I think it being in, you know, it, it kind of being in this already clinical environment. You know, the, just the way you park your car and then walk up to it. You know, there's there's kind of no sense of occasion, um, and you know, it's so easily discoverable. And you know, the the tables are, are shiny and look great, and the stage is pristine. And in a way, it was kind of it was too nice. You know, it was it was it. It's very hard to explain, but it it. Um, 
it didn't quite feel like a premium product because it still was a small comedy club in a shopping centre. Um, but it, it didn't feel like it. Okay, it didn't feel like it had a soul. I guess I guess that's the the only other way of describing it. Um, it it also I suppose was piggybacking quite a lot of Harith Iskander's personal brand. You know, he like had a statue of himself made and put that outside, and you know it said Harith Iskander's joke factory on the sign. Um, they were actually embroiled in a legal case. Um, I remember reading the court papers that the joke is it called the joke factory or the laugh factory? The laugh factory in in Los Angeles, they sued Harith Iskander for stealing trade secrets because reportedly he was in discussions with them about taking them on as a, as a franchise in Asia and then pulled out of the deal and set up his own club instead. So they sued him saying, you know, you've stolen our trade secrets. I mean, the, the kind of the, the, the learnings from this, I suppose, is I don't, I think they settled or, I mean, definitely didn't go, didn't go to court in the end. Um, and certainly, you know, the, the club didn't win anything, as far as I can tell. I think there was a settlement. Um, but I guess what it says is, is like you could get all the elements right. You know, you can, you could book comedians of a certain length. You can brand things a certain way. But there's some ethereal. There's something else. There's some magic ingredient that's needed in order to to tie everything together. And that's often the passion of the founder or the, you know, the 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 the, the space that the club has inherited. And, you know, Hootenannies, which is the new club in Edinburgh, which I recommend if you're in Edinburgh, you go check out. Um, that has that. You know, it has Rick, who is the resident MC, and it's his baby, and this is his big project. And, you know, he, uh, you know, I think one of the things that, well, one of the things I teach when I teach people how to MC is you've got to sincerely care about the quality of your audience's night out. You know, when you say welcome, you've got to mean it. Right, like I often one one game I play with with MCs that I'm uh, teaching is I'll get go and get them on stage and tell ev- and, and and welcome everybody, and you'll see that they don't really mean the word welcome. I'm like, you know, you're saying welcome, you're saying it's great to be here, but you you're not feeling it. You're just saying it, and people can pick up on that. And I think when you own your own club and when you really care about its success, and you say welcome, I'm so glad you're here. You really mean it. You know how well fought each and every one of these customers are and you know how important it is that, that they have a great night because you know ultimately your ability to pay your rent depends on it <sighs> so um anyway it's it's just it's it's just a very curious observation that day one you know very first show the place already has a feeling about it it has a it has a dna that will probably now last forever. You know, my point is that no matter no matter whether they change the way the lighting works, they book slightly different acts or, you know, they change the prices of the bar, the kind of the, the path for that club has already been set and they're they're gonna be operating um, you know, within this this, this particular DNA that, that, that just seems to exist, that seems to happen. Um, and one of the reasons I think they're succe- they're gonna be successful is they they've got a great product. And the product is not just the comedian standing on stage, because you can go, you know, they they book me, right? I could, you can see me at any club. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> Many clubs don't book me, but there's lots of clubs where you can see me. But the product is not seeing me. The product is the curation of all the acts that you see on one lineup, and it's the quality of the drinks that you buy, and the atmosphere, and how easy it was to get to, and you know how uh, much the 
door staff smiled when you went in and how comfy the chairs were and whether the show was exactly the right length and whether you brought friends along and it wasn't embarrassing, you know, that you feel like you've made the right choice. All of those things go into um, go into the success of a night from the, the punter's point of view. And anyway, I think they I think they've got it right. Good. That's that. Uh what else should I talk about? If I the last one was about half an hour, so I wonder if I can get that. Feel free to drop off at any point in the moment this becomes uninteresting. Um I spoke I spoke on the th- Oh for goodness sake. I actually I retweeted something. There was a new Japanese maglev train that they're just like announcing they're going to build in the next 10 years, which runs at speeds that if it went from London to Edinburgh, it would take an hour. Imagine that. I mean, it's less than flying. You know, it would just be... It would change so much. I mean, actually, okay, this is something I can definitely rant about. The quality of the train infrastructure in the UK is obviously abysmal. Two big observations. One, the timetabling. Obviously because of cuts, and obviously because it's not profitable, um, trains don't run late enough. You know that thing when you go on train line, and you look at the last train of the day, you're like, oh, there's a train that leaves at five minutes past um, 11, that's great, I'll take that. And then you see it's like, actually, actually, it arrives at 7am, because you're taking the last train of the day, then changing somewhere, then waiting till their 6am train, it's like, you know, six hours of waiting. And obviously, when I try to get to gigs using public transport, I'm almost inevitably looking at the last train of the day. And so much of the economy could be improved by people being able to take trains. You know, I think I can think of like four or five examples in the past month where if only it were easier for people to travel around this country by train, there would be more economic activity. I think of an example where we were offered to film something and, you know, I was kind of looking at who the videographers would be and where in the world they'd be. Well, because they can't take the last train back of the day, they'd have to take a take a hotel and pick up the gear the next day. And just the costs would just be too much. So we just didn't bid for the project. Whereas if there were an opportunity to take that train, you know, at midnight and head back to Newcastle or whatever it is, um, then we would. So I have I was offered um to either open or close a gig in somewhere outside of Brighton. I forgot where it is. Um, well, it'll be in my diary. Let's have a quick look. Do-do-do. I think it was November the... Okay, well, it's not there. Anyway, um, the point is I was given I was given an option to want to open or close. Obviously, closing earns a bit more money. Um, and uh, looking at the trains, it was going to cost like... Well, I don't think I would have made the last train if I closed. And then, you know, even if I did... Basically, I looked at it and it was like... I think the fee was going to be 100 quid. And the trains were going to cost 40 just to get back to London. Um, in the end, I found like an advanced £2.90 train or something. So I was like, <laughs> I'll get that. Thank you very much. And then opened. And it's like I, I had to do the cost-benefit of the extra £20 on the train ticket. Sorry, the extra £20 of the fee versus the extra £40 of the train ticket. Um, to get me back later. So yeah, my first observation is just train times. If only there were more late night services. Um, there's a whole like nighttime economy that would benefit. 
um, you know, think about the number of people that would travel to London and, you know, well, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, if you want a productive country, if you want a productive country, then I'm sure there is a positive correlation between the ease that people can move about and do business, you know, just, just taking a meeting. Um, if I lived in Edinburgh, well, I guess I do, I can't split my time between London and Edinburgh, but if I'm in Edinburgh and someone wants to meet me tomorrow in London, it's like a hundred quid decision. And it's a six hour out of my day decision, or four hours if I take the quicker train. Um, you know, imagine if that was an hour. Incredible, you know. That's my first observation. The uh, the lack of late night services mean that uh, so many people, so many people, at least in entertainment, don't take the train. That's a very small part of the economy. But I'm sure there are loads of others. I'm sure there are lots of people that would think that would take the train if there were more opportunities to do so. The second is, when I compare the UK to, say, Amsterdam, or the, rather the regions around Amsterdam, or the cities around uh, the Netherlands in general, and also Japan, about which I will not stop going on about, we are, like I'm looking out of the window now at a train station. It's, I'm at uh, Warrington Bank Key, right, Warrington Bank Key Station. It is absolutely abysmal quite how little infrastructure there is or development there is around here all i can see is like the lights of a warehouse so let me just have a little look at a map okay so i'm looking now oh hang on this is preston this is so google maps says i'm in preston but the sign says warrington bank key okay well anyway i think my oh no it just didn't it just didn't um it, it didn't catch up with me. Basically, um, all the um, looking around the station, there is a hotel very close. There's a car park, and then if I want to go to like the yellow section of Google Maps, um, where there's all like all the stuff, the pubs and the bars, it's a bit of a walk. And I think there is a huge problem when the train station isn't like the hub of the city. And one of the things that was wonderful about Japan was that every single train station would have an absolute hive of activity above it, below it, around the side of it. All of the railway arches underneath would have little restaurants. Um, often over the top uh, of the railway would be like a whole shopping centre. There'd be people living in absolute close proximity to that station. And like just to not even have to walk 10 minutes just changes everything about how you use that station because it's all, you know, you, you can access it in all weathers. It's safer for people. There's just so many advantages. Um, and we just don't, we just don't do that. Like, you know, think about the development like Bristol Temple Meads, you know, that, imagine just having that as the hub of a whole great big kind of little village of offices and, you know, and, and, and right, gentlemen, here we go. There's going to be a delay. That's good. Well, that's fantastic. Um, so the train manager is on his way, awaiting the London train manager to arrive to Warrington. This is obviously the last last train of the day. So that does mean that if um ten <laughs> fifty minute way. I mean what a you know I I just don't actually think I've taken a long distance train. Uh 
that hasn't had some form of issue. What an absolute disgrace of a country. Um, I... <laughs> just, it's also the last trade of the day. I remember seeing a Twitter thread of people that were taking the train from... I think it was also an Avanti West Coast that were going from London all the way up to Edinburgh. And they had to all get taxis. And it was a you know absolute um, smorgasbord of, uh, of problems. Anyway, um, I think it's on that note that I will leave you. Uh, if I were mayor of a city, the main thing I'd do is I'd say let's just throw as much money as we can into making the area around a train station full of activity. I'm talking shopping centres, coffee shops, entertainment venues, and just like just have that as the hub and have the train as a means of going in and out, right, literally right on people's doorsteps. Don't have it as some like you know, like the Victorians did, and just have it on the slight outskirts because it was a little bit stinky. No, we've moved on. Technology's better now. You can put things in tunnels. You can, you know, like just, you know, even like walking to a platform. Like at any regional station, it's like up a fucking bridge and over again. Put shops on that bridge. Anyway, stay toxic. <laughs>